Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. People get into bands for a couple of reasons. Number one, to get free beer. And number two, to get more sex. If you're in a decently popular band, the chances of you getting one or the other are automatically better than those enjoyed by the general public. But within the band, there are discrepancies. The lead singer and that hot guitarist tend to get the most attention, the most adoration, and the most action. That leaves the bass player and the drummer to, uh, well, to do the best that they can. And, And maybe get some scraps every once in a while. This is often extremely unfair because these people form the foundation of any band's sound, the bass and the beat. And you know what they say, you can have the greatest front person on the planet and the flashiest guitar god in the universe, but if you ain't got that swing, you ain't got a thing. So we're going to salute the people at the back of the stage, the people who lay down the grooves so that the guitarist and the singer have something to work with. These are New Rock's greatest rhythm sections. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. The Red Hot Chili Peppers featuring the backbone of Flea on bass and Chad Smith on drums, and together they form one of the great rhythm sections in all of new rock. We'll get back to them in a little while. Welcome to the show, I'm Alan Cross, and this time we're all about beats and grooves, the fluid low end that makes you want to move. And we're talking real grooves, too. Nothing made with a machine or cooked up on Pro Tools. A good rhythm section can turn an average or even mediocre band into something really special. These are the people who establish the heartbeat, the pace, the bounce, the slinkiness, the foundation for the melody and the lead instruments. If the kids are going to dance and have a good time, you got to have that bottom end. There are exceptions, but in the vast majority of cases, this job falls to two people, the drummer and the bass player. The drummer establishes and holds the beat. The bass is that bridge between rhythm and melody. It's percussive, augmenting the drummer's beat, and it's also the melodic backbone for whatever the lead instruments are doing. The greatest drums and bass combinations are seamless. Playing styles and senses of timing are totally complementary. Maybe there are really, really tight players who hit every note and every beat with machine-like accuracy. Or maybe there's a slight lag or relaxed feel to what they do. Whatever. The drummer and the bass player have some kind of psychic link so that once the beat and the groove starts, everything just flows and everything just falls into place. Now let's go back to the Chili Peppers for a second. Flea, whose real name is Michael Balzeri, by the way, is considered to be one of the greatest bass players in the world. He is so good that he has been hired as a studio musician by everyone from Alanis Morissette to Mick Jagger to Johnny Cash. Remember that young MC hit, Bust a Move? That's Flea on bass. Flea grew up in a household where the main music was jazz. In fact, his first instrument wasn't bass. It was the trumpet. He didn't start playing bass until high school. But because of his hardcore jazz background and because of his fascination with funk, Flea quickly developed a unique style that has been copied by millions all over the world. In fact, Flea's a little annoyed by this. If you listen to albums like Blood Sugar Sex Magic, you'll hear Flea doing the slap thing with his strings doesn't do that much anymore because after the Chili Peppers blew up, everybody started with the slop technique. 
His partner is drummer Chad Smith, a big, hard-hitting dude from Detroit who grew up listening to the relaxed rhythms of Motown. He was the last guy in a line of 30 people to audition for the gig when it came available in 1989, and he almost didn't make it through the audition, but there was something in Flea's head that kind of clicked. He and Flea started to jam, and he's been a chili pepper ever since. Let me play you something from a Chili Peppers concert in Hyde Park in London from June of 2004. This is a funky rhythm section that rocks. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, anchored by the awesome rhythm section of Flea on bass and Chad Smith on drums. Continuing on, in no particular order... There are, or at least there were, the Talking Heads. Out of all the bands to emerge from the punk and new wave scene of the late 70s and the early 1980s, the Talking Heads were easily the most rhythmically complex. Thanks in part to producer Brian Eno, the group created some pretty slinky and funky grooves which took post-punk musicianship to new levels. The bottom end came from the husband and wife team of Chris France on drums and Tina Weymouth on bass. They met while attending art school in Rhode Island and decided to move to New York with singer David Byrne in the middle 1970s. Early Talking Head stuff was in basic 4-4 time, but by the time they got to the 1980s, things had, uh... Just listen for yourself. The Talking Heads, anchored by Chris France and Tina Weymouth. That's called Cross-Eyed and Painless. Since we're back in the 80s, let's talk about the Smiths. Morrissey, the singer and lyricist, and Johnny Marr, the guitarist, got all the glory. And they deserved all the credit they got. However, lost in the mix was the fact that the Smiths had a pretty interesting rhythm section in Mike Joyce and Andy Rourke. Mike, the drummer, is by his own admission a bit of a ham-fisted player. He was all about power and volume. Andy, the bass player, was more about funk and subtlety. He, for example, was the guy who showed Mike how the bass and the bass drum should work together. The result was a unique sound for its time. As Mike puts it, we had a weird kind of communion. There was something very easy about it. And here's an example. The Smiths, featuring the rhythm section of Mike Joyce on drums and Andy Rourke on bass. If you're a Smiths fan and you're wondering what became of these guys, Mike went on to play with a variety of bands, including Badly Drawn Boy and Suede. Andy worked as a hired gun for a while before coming back together with Mike in a group called Vinnie Peculiar. In 1996, both of them sued Morrissey and Marr for non-payment of royalties. Andy settled for £80,000, while Mike went after more cash, and he was awarded £1.2 million. Morrissey, by the way, still hasn't paid up because he keeps appealing it through the courts. So, so much for that Smith's reunion, huh? More of alt-rock's greatest rhythm sections coming up, including the funkiest Britpop band of them all. 
Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out of all the bands to come out of Britain in the late 1980s, no one was more popular and influential than the Stone Roses. By 1988, they were pumping out a new sound that was equal parts 60s pop, 60s psychedelia, and modern dance. It was the perfect combination for the times, especially since rave and house were so big in the UK. And, of course, it didn't hurt that there was this new drug called ecstasy that encouraged people to dance just a little bit longer. That Rose's dance groove was held down by Rennie and Manny. Rennie, whose full name is Alan John Wren, joined the band first in 1985. He's the drummer. Manny, whose real name is Gary Monfield, hooked up with the Roses in 1987, and he's the bass player. And together, they created rock grooves that fit in perfectly with the acid house sensibilities of the day. This next track is considered to be their finest hour. From 1989, The Stone Roses with Fool's Gold. Stone Roses with Fool's Gold, a groove held down by Rennie on drums and Manny on bass. Rennie was the first guy to leave the band when things began to disintegrate in the middle 1990s, and he's been mostly out of sight since then, although rumors say that he's done a Dave Grohl and switched to guitar and is now working on solo material. Meanwhile, Manny has been working with Primal Scream over the past couple of years. Let's move to this side of the Atlantic for our next couple of killer rhythm sections. One of the things that made Rage Against the Machine so cool was that bottom end. Out front, singer Zach De La Roca and guitarist Tom Morello were brilliant enough to realize that for the band to really work, they had to give the rhythm section room to breathe. At the back of the band was bass player Tim Bob, or Tim C, or Tim Comerford, take your pick, and drummer Brad Wilk. Zach had known Tim since they were kids, growing up south of Los Angeles in a place called Irvine. Mom was a mathematician, while his dad was an aeronautical engineer who actually worked on the space shuttle. Tim and Zach formed their first band in grade 7, something they called Juvenile Expression, after Zach taught Tim how to play bass along with the Sex Pistols' Nevermind the Bollocks album. After that, Tim spent hours trying to learn Geddy Lee's parts and all the Rush albums he could buy. Brad was a KISS fan from Chicago, who started out on guitar before he became a fan of Who drummer Keith Moon. He soon got deep into lessons from some serious jazz pros, and his hero was a guy named Elvin Jones, from whom Brad learned some very, very funky grooves. He also studied James Brown and George Clinton records and learned how to insert a microsecond delay into his timekeeping, something that's essential to a good groove. While living in the San Diego area, he played in a band called Indian Style, who had a singer by the name of Eddie Vedder. Yes, him. Everyone in Rage found themselves through some musicians wanted classified ads. They recorded a 12-song cassette in 1991. By 1992, they released their major label debut, which was basically that same cassette, with just a few alterations. Over the next eight years, Rage Against the Machine got a rep as one of the most political bands in the alternative nation, and one of the funkiest. Thanks to Tim Bob and Brad Wilk. Since a prehistoric ages and the days of ancient Greece, walk down to the middle. 
Rage Against the Machine, featuring the rhythm section of Brad Welk on drums and Tim Comerford on bass. Two more rhythm teams before we're done, one from Los Angeles and another from the Republic of Ireland. There are those who will tell you that one of the best rhythm sections they've ever heard is the one that came with Jane's Addiction in the late 80s and early 1990s, and they might have a point. Jane's was anchored by bassist Eric Avery and drummer Stephen Perkins. Eric was the first guy to join up. He was one of Jane's friends, Jane being the junkie hooker after which the band was eventually named. And he and Perry Farrell spent some time goofing around, you know, just the two of them. Soon, Eric introduced Perry to two school buddies, guitarist Dave Navarro and a drummer named Stephen Perkins, who were both members of a metal band called Disaster. Perry loved to tell a story about Stephen. He concocted this myth that the band's first drummer was actually a guy from Tahiti who made a living smuggling canaries. But he died of an overdose, and Stephen is, allegedly, this dude's twin brother and a former boyfriend of actress Jodie Foster, but trust me, don't believe any of it. Whatever the case, Eric and Stephen had that psychic, rhythmic connection. How else can you explain their parts in songs like this? Jane's Addiction, featuring the rhythms and beats of Stephen Perkins and Eric Avery. Finally, we have Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen of U2. Larry, the drummer, is actually the guy who got the ball rolling with U2 when he put up a note on the bulletin board at school back in 1976. He was a military band drummer by training. He got lessons from a guy named Joe Bonney, who was Ireland's most famous drummer for a time. And Larry spent a good portion of his younger days touring the country in a marching band. Adam Clayton was the first guy to respond to that ad on the bulletin board. He had played in a small band where he became the bass player by default. Good thing, too, because he had a reputation as being a lazy troublemaker in school. The only thing that got him to care about anything was that bass guitar. That band, whatever the name was, was the only other group in which Adam has ever played. Now, I think we're all familiar with U2's main body of work, so I want to play something a little different. This is a project on which Larry and Adam worked in 1996, when the first Mission Impossible film with Tom Cruise came out. Larry and Adam took the original theme, which was composed by a dude named Lalo Shifflin, and gave it an update. This is just the bottom half of U2, with a little movie music. One half, the rhythmic half of U2, Larry Mullen on bass and Adam Clayton on drums, and their version of the Mission Impossible theme, which was released as a single in 1996. This show does not by any means feature any kind of definitive list of the best rhythm sections in the history of new rock. It all depends, I guess, on what you mean by best. Could it be the rock-solid jet engine rhythms of the Ramones? Hmm, possibly. How about the way Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic mesh together when playing with Nirvana? Sure, you can make an argument for that. A big part of Pearl Jam's success has been their bottom end, despite the fact that they've changed drummers so many times over the years that few people can remember all their names. Hey, Korn is pretty good. Any number of ska bands might fit the bill. Bottom line is that we couldn't possibly cover them all here, but hopefully, if you don't already, you have a new appreciation for the guys and women in the back, behind the singer, and the flashy guitarist. Maybe you'll be a little more inclined to listen a little more carefully to the low notes and to the beats 
and most importantly, how they can work together so beautifully. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston and Andrew Leung. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.